The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read out their pieces from the magazine. I'm Cindy Yu. On this week's episode, we have the journalist Peter Oborn, who writes a letter from Jerusalem. We have Kate Andrews, the Spectator's economics editor, on why Rishi Sunak has made her take up smoking. And finally, Jonathan Maitland, who talks about his obsession with Martin Bashir. First, it's Peter Oborn. Six weeks ago, I invited Ahmed Al-Nouk, a young diplomat who had recently joined the Palestinian mission in London, to stay for a cricket weekend in Wiltshire. He resisted all entreaties to play the game, but was in every other way a delightful guest. On Sunday, Ahmed learnt that his family in Gaza has been wiped out by an Israeli bomb. His father, siblings, and more than 15 nieces and nephews had all been killed. 23 dead, no injuries. Another brother was killed by an Israeli bombing in 2014. His mother died three years ago because, he says, Israel denied her medical treatment. When I sent him a text message saying that he and his family were in my thoughts and prayers, it felt hopeless, but what else can one say? He replied, my family is gone, Peter, all of them my father, brothers and sisters, and all their children. Everyone is gone. The Gaza Health Ministry says that the death toll from the Israeli bombing is now over 5,000, more than 2,000 of whom are children. Those who die at once are fortunate. Many endure slow deaths crushed in the rubble. Gazans write their names on their limbs, as a precaution so that when their bodies are found, they can be identified. Many Palestinians outside Gaza live in fear. In some areas, they dare not speak Arabic in the street. The police tore the streets, entering shops, demanding to see Palestinians' mobile phones. Any sign of support for Gaza, and they are bundled into vans. WhatsApp groups call for violence against Palestinians. One telegram channel is publicising the names, photographs and addresses of prominent Palestinians, demanding that they be killed. Those identified include politicians, religious leaders, activists and public officials. One of them is Sheikh Akrima Sabri, imam of Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque. Across the West Bank, more than 90 Palestinians have been killed over the past two weeks by the Israeli army or by settlers. Itamar Ben-Gavir, Israel's national security minister, has arranged for assault rifles to be issued to so-called civilian security teams. He personally oversees the distribution with the benign air of a headmaster at an awards ceremony. Last Sunday, I attended a communion service at St. George's, the Anglican Cathedral in East Jerusalem, taken by the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
The theme for his sermon was Jesus' advice to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. His grace used this text to argue that the church must involve itself in the messiness of human life, arguing against what he called false binaries. After the service, he issued jointly with Jerusalem church leaders an unambiguous statement demanding an immediate ceasefire. This demand has opened a rupture between church and state because Britain's Prime Minister takes the opposite position. On his recent visit to Tel Aviv, Rishi Sunak was of course right to condemn the unspeakable and depraved barbarity of the Hamas atrocities, as well as to extend deepest sympathy to Israel and assert its duty to defend itself. But Sunak also had a responsibility to remind Benjamin Netanyahu, erratic leader of the most far-right government in Israel's history, of his duties under international law. Margaret Thatcher would have done so, though a passionate admirer of the Jewish people. She was never afraid to challenge Israel's war crimes, for instance calling the phalangist massacre of Palestinian refugees and Lebanese Shia at the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps, with IDF troops standing idly by, sheer barbarism. Britain's abstention on last week's UN vote for a ceasefire is a disappointment. Sunak's insouciance is all the more shocking because of the language from Israeli high command. The Defence Minister, Yoav Gallant, says that Israel is fighting, I quote, human animals, promising that Israel will, I quote again, eliminate everything in Gaza. President Herzog says that, I quote, nobody is innocent in the enclave. Such remarks send a chilling message to troops poised to invade. No wonder Palestinians fear a repetition of the Nakba catastrophe, which saw 750,000 driven from their homes in 1948. Yesterday, a Muslim friend and I walked along the Via Dolorosa to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We found the chapel where, according to tradition, Jesus Christ was crucified. For a long time we prayed. There are almost no tourists in Jerusalem, but a few locals joined us and prostrated themselves. Christ's message of love and forgiveness is ultimately the only resolution to conflict. It has never seemed so distant. Land invasion feels inevitable. If that happens, the carnage thus far may seem a drop in an ocean of blood. That was Peter Oborn writing from Jerusalem. And now, Kate Andrews. What has Rishi Sunak's government achieved in its first year? The highlights include a renegotiated Brexit policy and setting more practical net-zero deadlines. But Sunak asked the country to judge him on his ability to deliver his pledges set out at the start of the year. If polls are to be believed, voters are preparing to do just that. Inflation is falling, but that's largely due to interest rate hikes announced by the Bank of England. The economy is growing, but barely. The NHS waiting list keeps rising, 7.6 million now in England alone. 
On this last point, no doubt the six-figure salaried consultants who keep striking deserve part of the blame. But to say the Sunak government is struggling to make good on its promises, we'd be putting it rather gently. Still, it occurs to me that there is a more recent policy proposal that is already having an effect, certainly on my life, though perhaps not in the way the government intended. It's thanks to Sunak's latest plan to ban smoking for future generations that I had a cigarette for the first time in almost 10 years. This was not a decision I made lightly. I've never been a smoker. The few puffs on cigarettes I tried as a teenager left me dizzy and uninterested. On the evening of my 24th birthday, I decided I wasn't much of a libertarian if I didn't give smoking a proper go. It wasn't my brightest idea. Still, I tried. Five cigarettes made me violently sick for the next two days. I don't know why I thought this experiment would end well. Nothing fun agrees with me. At 19, my poor dad had to pick me up from a friend's house at midnight when I tried her joint. Dad, I'm dying, I sobbed over the phone. He started to panic until I explained I took three hits. He laughed and told me to eat some ice cream while he drove to pick me up. It was good advice I was unable to act on as my panic and paranoia had me seeing four of everything. I drink, but have never tried or wanted to test this past moderation. I switched to decaf in my early 20s because coffee was making me crazy and giving me the shakes. It's still a toss-up as to whether a multivitamin on an empty stomach will make me sick. I'm just grateful that, despite my failed attempts to misbehave, I became a liberal who wants people to live freely, rather than becoming part of the distressingly large proportion of the British public, 25%, who told pollsters at the end of lockdown that they wanted nightclubs to stay permanently closed. Three weeks ago, I was sitting on the Eurostar to Paris, reflecting on the Prime Minister's grand idea to create a second tier of legal rights for adults, when I decided that liberal sentiments were not enough. The miserable policy inspired action, some kind of act of solidarity with future grown-ups. I hopped off the train at Gare du Nord and picked up a pack of Vogue's at the first tabac I could find. Later, after a long lunch with a friend at Paris's friendliest restaurant, Chez Fernand Christine, we wandered around tipsy until we landed on a beautiful cafe. I pulled out my Vokes. Looking around at the streets and my fellow patrons, it was clear to me why David Hockney, who spent his life fleeing boring, stifling, and nannying places, settled in France. It's a culture that seems to judge people less, in restaurants at least. My friend told me she was just as furious with Sunex ban, which was a relief to hear as polling earlier this year suggested that half of Britain's public support an all-out ban on smoking. It's the kind of authoritarian impulse you'd hope a conservative party, which loves to bandy the word freedom around when it suits them, would reject. Yet successive Tory governments have worked hard for 13 years to come up with ways to make life less affordable and less fun. The sugar tax is an obvious example. The proposed smoking ban might be the government's biggest overreach yet, COVID rules notwithstanding. In fact, the same kind of flawed reasoning that led to nonsensical COVID rules is behind the smoking ban. When he was chancellor, Sunak lamented the faulty assumptions behind Sage's modeling. Yet the models for his smoking ban use the same tricks. Unexplained assumptions that don't reflect current treads are fed into the model, and all scenarios assume the policy is needed to eradicate smoking. The great irony is that the government doesn't need to manipulate the numbers. Smoking rates are at their lowest on record, especially among the young. Everyone knows smoking is dangerous. Ministers are quite right to say there's no healthy level of cigarette consumption. The same goes for fried pickles, Jaeger bombs, and men who won't commit. It's not hard to imagine that future leaders might see Sunak's ban as a playbook for how to start banning whatever they don't like. 
It's a tragedy that both the Tories and Labour now think that the role of government is to turn politicians' pet peeves into nationwide bans. I hope the next generation of adults go smoke-free, but that should be their decision to make. I unwrapped the box, lit a Vogue, and took a few drags. It was delicious. It felt sharp in my chest. I passed out an hour later. That was Kate Andrews, and finally, Jonathan Maitland. I have become rather obsessed with Martin Bashir and his downfall. Three years ago, I began researching a play based around his infamous 1995 panorama interview with Diana, Princess of Wales, which he secured by forging bank statements and reinforcing her belief that there was an establishment conspiracy against her. When I started writing it, I thought I'd soon understand him, but he still baffles me. When we corresponded via email recently, he suggested playing himself on stage or failing that. What about Idris Elba? I couldn't tell if he was joking or not. I knew Bashir pretty well back in the day. We were fellow reporters at the BBC and ITV for 13 years, and he even joined my covers band, Surf and Turf, on percussion, and very good he was too. He was a world-class flatterer, forever telling people how brilliant they were and how it was his life's ambition to work with them. Most people saw through his smoke-up-the-fundament routine, but plenty didn't. What fascinates me is how exactly he finally won Diana's confidence. The document forging got him through the front door, but how did she come to trust him enough to let him make her pasta and pesto in her kitchen? And why did he become the Malcolm X of journalism, getting the story by any means necessary? How did he justify it to himself? So let's get the obvious stuff out of the way first. Bashir's methods were wrong and possibly sociopathic. As well as forging documents, he fed Diana a series of lurid and possibly libelous stories during his intense pre-interview wooing of her. So I'm not defending him, but as with most scandals, the truth is less Manichaean than the received wisdom of Diana Angel, Bashir Devil. It's absurd, for example, to blame him for her death, as some commentators have done, Had he not tricked her into the interview, they say, she would have remained part of the royal family, had professional security and lived. But leaving aside the fact that this denies Diana any agency, she desperately wanted to do the interview, it was just a question of who with, there are surely more plausible scapegoats like the chauffeur, Henri Paul, Mohammed Al-Fayed's security team, the paparazzi, or even the dysfunctional, vengeful institution that chewed her up and spat her out. To blame Bashir is also to absolve the bigger sinner, the BBC. As with Jimmy Savile, senior executives knew about the wrongdoing but failed to act. I'm not for one moment comparing Bashir's actions to Savile's, but there are similarities in the way both scandals were handled. When Bashir admitted his forgeries to the then BBC head of news Tony Hall, just months after the 1995 interview, he was forgiven instantly. Hall, and this would have been a tough call admittedly, should have sacked him and apologised publicly, but instead the BBC continued to pat itself on the back for its scoop and pretend all was well, until 2020 when journalist Andy Webb reignited the story. But after the Mail on Sunday carried news of the forging in 1996, hear no evil, see no evil BBC execs dismissed it as a tabloid smear motivated by commercial interests. 
but it turned out the terrible tabloid was right all along. But the 1995 interview isn't just a go-to example of dodgy journalistic practice. It's much more valuable than that. It's the perfect lens through which to examine Diana and understand her more. On the one hand, it shows her extraordinary bravery in single-handedly taking on a powerful institution. On the other, it demonstrates her acute lack of strategic judgment. After she went in all guns blazing about the future king, it was never going to end well. As her former aide Patrick Jefferson argues, if she'd been diplomatic and forgiven his extracurricular activities for the sake of her country and her boys, she'd have won the PR game 5-0 and quite possibly would have become queen. But the most important issue of all, obscured by all the Bashir bashing, is how the interview was effectively banned. Prince William has decreed, It is my firm view that it holds no legitimacy and should never be aired again. Well, it's my view and that of many media executives that his edict, immediately and cravenly agreed to by the BBC, is blatant censorship. The interview is an important historical document. It highlighted issues like depression and self-harm, which until then were rarely discussed. So why are the BBC and William behaving like this? There's dramatic irony here. The son that Diana brought up to have the courage to speak out has silenced his own mother for having the courage to speak out. That was Jonathan Maitland. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Spectator Out Loud. If you enjoyed these articles, then why not pick up an issue of the magazine as well, where there are many more brilliant articles. I'm Cindy Yu, and do join us again next week for Spectator Out Loud. <laughs>